Turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. Last week we received the command to be of sound judgment and sober spirit. To have sober spirits because the end of all things is near. We also received a few instructions of what that sound judgment looks like. Starting with prayer. The moment you judge the world with sound judgment, you realize you have to pray. The moment you look at yourself with accurate, righteous judgment, you realize, I have to pray. And then, having judged yourself accurately, you Realize the necessity of forgiving others, seeing how much you have sinned against others. And so, we are reminded that love, the need to love one another, that love covers a multitude of sins. What a joy that is to be reminded of, isn't it? Because after all, wouldn't you rather love your brother than be angry at him? Wouldn't you rather love your brother than sit in judgment on him, be bitter against him? Isn't it just a lot nicer to live loving rather than holding grudges? So, We begin to see that this righteous judgment, this, this, this sober-mindedness leads to us living a particular way. One of the things that <clears throat> I thought about preaching an entire sermon on was simply this requirement that those who speak are to speak as those proclaiming God's Word. And preaching that is authoritative is lacking today, but not many of you are preachers, so I decided I wasn't going to take a whole Sunday to tell you all the ways that I fail and that other preachers fail. But needless to say, it's a good reminder to me what sober judgment, sober-mindedness looks like accurately recognizing what is at stake and what we have been given means that I speak with the authority of God himself as I proclaim his word. And we must not be apologetic for claiming that authority as we tell others what God has said. If we speak, we are to speak that way. If we serve, we are to serve joyfully. It's to be true service. Just like when we give, we're to give generously and without uh, grudging the fact that we have to give of our time or of our money. All of these are results of accurately judging what God has done for us, what he has accomplished on our behalf, accurately judging 
who we are and what we deserve and who other people are, accurately judging what his word says and what it means for us. All of that leads us to live a certain way, starting with prayer. And all of it is so that God may be glorified in Christ Jesus. Now, straight from that, that's a summary of last week's sermon, straight from that, Peter goes back into his theme of persecution. Theme throughout the book. He returns to the theme of persecution here, why it happens, and how we are to endure it. And he has said things along these lines several times in the book, but he he changes his emphasis. He brings out a new point each time. And so we're going to have the opportunity, the joy of studying it again and being reminded of certain things. So listen now and stand as we read 1 Peter 4, 12 through 19. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler, But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Persecution is a fiery ordeal. Peter does not deny that it's a fiery ordeal. He does not deny that it is painful. He does not tell us to pretend as though there's nothing wrong. He does not want us to act like I'm great all the time. Rather, he wants us to judge with righteous judgment. And to say, yes, this is a fiery ordeal. Now, one time I was at camp and I got sent. I had to go to the eye doctor. The camp camp director said, your eye looks messed up. It did indeed look terrible. You must go to an eye doctor. That was about an hour and a half drive. And my car had been sitting parked in the grass for probably three or four weeks at that point. So I hopped in my car and I began driving north to Chattanooga. And as I was driving, ow, something bit me. 
out. And pretty soon, all over, fire ants had built a nest somewhere in my car, and they were coming up. And it was a fiery ordeal driving to Chattanooga. It hurt. And I didn't sit there and pretend like there was nothing wrong. I had trouble sitting there and not cursing and being angry because I didn't want to go to the eye doctor, actually. I was blaming everything that went wrong on the camp director who was making me do it in the first place. But it was a fiery ordeal. It hurt. And it kept on hurting. And I kept squashing them and trying to throw them out the window and brush them. And, and I was, let's say, surprised at this fiery ordeal. Because I had no idea that I could expect ants to build a nest in my car. I had no idea that they had done it. I wasn't expecting this fiery ordeal. But Peter says, hey, listen, persecution is a fiery ordeal, but you must not be surprised at this fiery ordeal when it comes upon you. He's writing to people who are currently undergoing severe persecution. We are not undergoing severe persecution. But if we are judging with sober judgment, if we are living sober-mindedly, judging righteously, then we will look at what is happening in our lives, we will look at what is happening in this nation, we will look at the commands of Scripture, we'll look at the things that God has said that we must proclaim, both through our actions and our words, and we'll realize the world does not like the gospel, the world does not like Christians, we ought to expect because God warned us many places and many times in his word that persecution will come. So we should not, must not, will not be surprised at this fiery ordeal. Now let's say somebody offered you a job. They said, Got a real, real easy money for you. $100,000 a year. And you just need to show up at this room and let the doctors examine your foot every day. That's all you have to do. How many would be interested? I'd be interested. I think I could be a pastor and do that, right? So you take the job, you show up, they look at your foot, and then they cut half of it off and say, come back, we're going to check tomorrow whether it grew back. That would be a fiery ordeal, wouldn't it? One that you would be rightfully surprised by. Now here's, here's the thing. If they had never told you that, that was part of the deal, you would rightfully be surprised. But let's say they had told you that was part of the deal. Fewer people would be interested, right? You might have counted the cost about whether you wanted to go through with this job idea. 
$100,000 doesn't sound quite as good, does it? Do, do any of you expect half of your foot to grow back? Do the, do the doctors need to study? <laughs> so here we have this reminder. There is persecution. It comes on Christians. It's a fiery ordeal. You shouldn't be surprised when it happens. If you're surprised, not only have you not been judging what's coming. Whoa, there's water down there. I just saw water. There's a cup of water. Thank you, whoever gave me water. I kicked it. If you're surprised when the fiery ordeal comes on you, you have not been judging what's coming. You have not been sober-minded in thinking about what it means to be a Christian. But also, even if you were warned, when it comes on you, have you already counted the cost, or is that the first time that you start counting the cost? You see what I'm saying? You don't show up, have your foot cut off, and then decide whether it's a good deal or not. If you know that's part of the deal, if you know that persecution is part of what it means to be a Christian, when it comes, you don't go, Hey, wait a minute. I thought that this was supposed to be a happy religion, a nice place. I thought that everything would be sweet and smiles. You should not be acting surprised, Peter says. And you know the temptation to act surprised, right? Wait a minute. I wasn't expecting this. We warned you. We told you to count the cost. Peter's thinking, you know me. You read about me getting arrested and, right? You, you know they thought I was dead, remember? This is the very beginning. You know what happened to Jesus, right? You remember what they did to him? Now seriously, don't act surprised. Don't be surprised at this fiery ordeal. If you have not counted the cost, now is the time to count the cost. Because we will be tempted to turn away from God because of the trouble. Because of the fiery ordeal. Now you see this throughout the scriptures. You see examples of people who when faced with that trouble, with that persecution, turn away from Jesus Christ. And Peter is saying, look, if you prepare yourself, if you're sober-minded, if you're walking into this soberly, instead of happy-go-lucky, la-di-la, here we go, oh no, it hurts. If you go in sober-minded, you're not going to be surprised. You're going to be prepared. You're going to be ready. You'll be able to survive it without buckling, without caving to pressure, without 
giving up the teachings of Jesus Christ without becoming ashamed of them, without hiding what he has said, right? Think of all of the temptations that come with persecution. And Peter is saying, hey, come on. Let's be prepared knowing that persecution is coming. Let's not be surprised. And of course, he immediately goes and talks about Christ's suffering. Not so much his suffering. Now, if you read Paul, Paul talks about his own suffering several places. He's, he uh, doesn't like to bring it up, but nevertheless, he doesn't hesitate to bring it up. And to use himself as an example here, Peter just uses Jesus as an example and says we are to share his sufferings. And if we do, the outcome will be that when he is revealed in his glory, we will rejoice and exult. Now that makes sense if you think about it, right? Jesus Christ is our king. We are working with him. We are seeking to establish his kingdom. We pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. We're seeking to do his will. We're seeking to bring others into his kingdom. We're seeking to establish his kingdom, right? Okay? So when his kingdom is finally manifest such that every knee in heaven and on earth bows before him, what are you going to do? You're going to smile, right? This is the day that we have been looking forward to. This is the day that we have been excited about. This is the fulfillment, the final fulfillment of the rest of the promises. This is what I've been working for. This is what I've been working with him to accomplish. And so now it's here. It's successful. It's time to celebrate. You're going to exult. It's done. The work is completed. It's been finished. This is what we've been looking forward to. And so you exult. You rejoice. Why else do you rejoice? Well, you rejoice because on that day, his enemies and ours are shown the results of their wickedness. They get their due reward. And once again, the Christian rejoices. The Christian rejoices to see God's justice finally completed and made perfect. Just as on that day we rejoice to see his mercy completed and made perfect, right? Just as on that day we rejoice to see his people completed and made perfect. Just as we rejoice on that day to see all sin and sorrow and suffering ended. So we rejoice to see his enemies trampled under his feet. 
These are all things that we rejoice in on that day. And in the context of persecution, you can't help thinking, his enemies are my enemies, aren't they? His enemies are my enemies. But it goes further than that. He's not, Peter is not just saying, rejoice, because on that day there will be plenty to rejoice about. No, he's saying, rejoice now. Rejoice now. Why? Because we are blessed. Really? I thought you said it was a fiery ordeal, Peter. Are we actually blessed, or is it a fiery ordeal? That's what we want to, in human judgment, decide between, right? Peter says, now wait. You are blessed because being persecuted for righteousness' sake, being persecuted for the name of Jesus Christ, demonstrates that you are in him. What more blessing, how, how much more blessed can you be than to be in Christ Jesus? There is no blessing greater than that, than to receive the promises that Peter spoke about in the beginning of the book, that imperishable inheritance. Can you ask for a better inheritance than receiving the kingdom along with Jesus Christ? No. And when you are persecuted for his name's sake, it demonstrates that you are in him. You have his spirit. And so along with the apostles, you rejoice that you have been counted worthy to suffer for his name's sake. That's what persecution is. Suffering for his name's sake. And at that point, you are bathed in his glory. He's the one who's glorified. You're bathed in it, though, because your acts are holy, and that demonstrates and proclaims to the world his glory. He is worthy of all praise. He is worthy of my obedience. He is worthy of me dying on his behalf. Your words and your actions proclaim it, and that shines his glory to the watching world. This is what it means to be a city set on a hill, a light shining in the darkness, not covered under a bushel. This is what it means to be salty. Salty salt, right? Rather than tasteless salt. We're bathed, covered, demonstrating his glory both in our actions and our words and in what is happening to us because we are being united with him in suffering. And here once again he says, if, puts that important qualification on there, assuming that your deeds are good. 
Once again, he warns us that this suffering must not be for the wrong reasons. It must not be for wickedness. It must not be for disobedience. It must be for obedience. And so he lists just a number of things It's very common in the scriptures, and it's a helpful thing, when wickedness is mentioned, for the writer to just, you know, throw in some easy applications for us. Not to leave it all super general. Just like when he gives us what it looks like for us to live sober-mindedly and with judgment, all of a sudden he gives specific examples, so he gives specific examples here. Not to suffer as a murderer. Not to suffer as a thief. You are not to suffer as an evildoer. You are not to suffer because you are a troublesome meddler. And what good would I be if I didn't expound at least one of those a little bit? Right? Let's go with troublesome meddler this morning. A troublesome meddler. What is a troublesome meddler? Someone who gets involved in business that's not their own, right? So where do we see Troublesome meddling happening. It's never something that happens in the church, I'm sure. Of course we're tempted to troublesome meddling in the church, right? Why are we warned against gossip so many times? There are some people that like to concern themselves with other people's business and to meddle in it and to try to make their decisions for them out of just such concern for that other person. But is it actually out of concern for that other person? Or is it because you don't want to deal with your own sin? You don't want to remove the log from your own eye, and so you'd rather simply talk about and deal with and point out and meddle with the lives of others. Troublesome meddling is troublesome, isn't it? And here's the irony. The less helpful meddling that happens from those who are given the work of caring for the souls of the church, the pastors and the elders and the deacons, have work that looks very meddlesome. The less they do that work of meddling in people's lives in a faithful manner, the more troublesome meddling that happens by other people. And so what we've done today in the church is we've said, 
No leaders, no authorities may tell me anything authoritatively. No authorities may meddle in my life. No authorities may diagnose me, may judge me, and therefore sin grows and troublesome meddlers multiply. That's what happens. Now I chose troublesome meddling, and we'll get back to it and see this application a little bit more in a few minutes. But we're given this warning. These are not the kinds of things that you're supposed to suffer for. And by the way, you will suffer for being a troublesome meddler. You know when that comes back and bites you, right? It does cause suffering, not just for other people, but for you. This is called tattling in kids, right? Tattlers are troublesome meddlers. And it brings pain down on their own heads, even though they're trying to cause pain and suffering for other people. Same thing happens with adults. But if we're not suffering because we're being wicked, if we're suffering for righteousness, then we have glory and not shame. If our deeds that led to suffering are for being a Christian, and here immediately judgment returns to the picture. Peter brings up judgment again. And what does he do? He says, It is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? So judgment. Judgment begins with the household of God. What does that mean? It means, when you look at the Old Testament, that God deals first with his people, then with the surrounding nations. Remember that in the Minor Prophets? as we read through them recently. He deals with his people first. He disciplines his people first. He warns them first. He corrects them first. Why? Because they are his children. The household of faith, the household of God, They are his children. They are his own, his chosen, his called out ones. If we are part of a royal priesthood, we're part of the king's family, right? This is just like a a father who pays more attention to his own kids and is harder on them and has higher expectations for them 
than other kids who are guests in his house. That's to be expected, isn't it? It's pretty normal, isn't it? Why? Because they're his kids. He has disciplined them. He has given them the rules. He knows they know what they're supposed to do. And so he holds them to a higher standard because he loves them. And so he disciplines his own children more stringently than he disciplines other people's children, doesn't he? This is appropriate. This is us taking God as our model as fathers. So part of it is that God begins his judgment with the household of faith. But it also has to do with judgment from the rest of the household. We have been told to judge properly, right? Just in the previous sermon, we were hearing all about that. And so here we have uh, this reminder, judgment is to begin with the household of faith. And one of the things that he's saying is, look, if you're concerned about what people are doing, be most concerned about the household of faith. What happens if we don't have sound judgment? If we don't have sound judgment in the household of faith, if we don't have proper judgment made sober-mindedly regarding those who claim to be followers of Christ, then we will be driven with the wind. That's what will happen. We'll just be here and there and all over the place because we won't be making accurate, careful judgments. This goes all the way to the extent that you were, were warned that if people are saying that Christ has returned, he's over here, that we're told not to believe them. And so, you have to make a judgment, don't you? You have to remember what he has said. You have to evaluate what people are saying on the basis of his word. You have to evaluate their teachings on the basis of what his word says. That's the people who claim the name of Jesus Christ, right? What we always want to do is we want to look outside the church and say, look at all the wicked. And he says, yeah, what else is new? Are you going to be surprised about that too? The wicked are surprised. They're surprised that you won't run with them anymore into these lusts of the flesh, these excesses, these parties, these drunken bashes and orgies. They're surprised that you're not taking advantage of it when you have the opportunity, right? But you having judged sober-mindedly, ought not to be surprised that they hate you when you don't. You ought not to be surprised at what they're doing either. 
And by the way, what does it help to focus on them and their sin? Yep, the wicked are still wicketing. What else is new, right? Here's what you need to worry about. The people who you don't realize are wicked, who are in your fellowship, who are reefs, hidden reefs in your love feast. You know what happens when a boat hits a hidden reef? It's gone. It's destroyed. And so we're we're to make righteous judgments in the household of faith, first and foremost. Because that is where life is at stake. Eternal life is at stake. What else will happen if we don't have sound judgment in the household of faith? Well, we'll get embroiled in meaningless arguments. Realize, huh, there's some things that aren't worth fighting about, aren't there? As a matter of fact, Timothy's warned several times by Paul not to get involved in controversies about meaningless words, right? What else will happen? We'll be led astray by false teachers. So this is what God gives to his sons. And it's difficult, isn't it? The work of discerning, of judging properly, of being sober-minded, of prayer, of undergoing persecution, of not being surprised by it and rather having prepared for it and responding to it with rejoicing. Remembering that we are blessed. This is what God gives to his sons. Difficulty. Then what will he give to his enemies? And right here, you've got Satan's temptation. Right? If this is what he gives to his sons, can it really be worse to be one of his enemies? If this is what he gives to his sons, are you sure he really loves you? But what does Peter say? If this is what he gives to his sons, think of what will happen to his enemies. This is simply his discipline for love of you that he gives to you. This is not him pouring his wrath out on you. And so, he returns then at the end of this passage to where he was at the beginning. Are you going to entrust your soul to a faithful creator in doing what is right? Are you going to entrust your soul to him? Or are you going to refuse the moment that you see the fiery ordeal? The moment that you see 
the, diffi the difficulty. If you have lacked judgment in the house of God, then in the end we will have no intention of suffering with him. If there has never been any prayer preparing us for this suffering, strengthening us, if there has never been <clears throat> any counting of the costs, we know from the parable of the seeds that some spring up and seem to be bearing good fruit. The leaves are there. And the moment that the troubles of the world come upon them, eh, this is not for me. And so my charge to each of you this morning is to ask yourself, what do you expect being a Christian? What do you expect? Do you expect God's blessing to include persecution? Have you come to believe that if he gives you persecution, he's not worth serving? Like the wicked servant, like the seeds planted and the stony ground on the, next to the thorns and the thistles. And together with that, are you willing to have other people called to count the cost? See, the very idea of saying, becoming a Christian means you will be entering into a faithful brotherhood of suffering is going to lead some to accuse you of trying to prevent people from becoming Christians. Right? Are you trying to make Christianity sound bad? Are you trying to make people feel like it's going to be miserable? No, it's not miserable. It's a fiery ordeal. It's God's blessing. It comes with an imperishable inheritance. Have you counted the cost? Because you can entrust your soul to him. He is faithful. And so doing good is glorious. It's glorious even when it is hard. It's a glorious thing to be obedient, especially when it's hard. Glorious to you feels right deep in your soul. Hurts to like a workout, right? Produces in the end glory for our Creator. And that's what we want. We want to glorify Him. Seeing Him glorified 
is what we are aiming for. Yes, in our own lives, what is man's chief end? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. We take that a lot of times to mean, what is my chief end? My chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. True enough. What about the man next to you? What's his chief end? Also to glorify God and enjoy him forever, right? The moment you see that, you realize... If I am going to make God glorified, that means I want him to be glorified by everybody. Not just me. And that's why it's such a delight to think about his final coming victory, isn't it? Every knee will bow. Awesome. He's the creator. He deserves to be glorified. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we raise up your name. We honor and magnify you. We glorify you through your Son, Jesus Christ, who has given us all that we need for life and for godliness. Heavenly Father, as we face trouble, as we face pain, as we undergo fiery ordeals because we have been obedient, Father, grant us strength. Help us today to be preparing, to be counting the cost, so that we will not be surprised, so that we will not be caught off guard, so that we will not be turned aside in shame when that day comes. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.